Our passage this morning comes from Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9 and 10 are his response to Bildad, uh, to the, uh, the, the bitter diatribe that Bildad brought against him. Uh, Job uh, is uh, much kinder in his response, uh, kinder even than he was to Eliphaz. Uh, chapter 9 is his response to Bildad. Chapter 10 is his turning from Bildad to the Lord. In, again, in anguish and prayer, we're going to look at chapter 9 this morning. Before I uh, read the passage, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you again this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. We do praise you and thank you that you revealed yourself unto us, that you have given your spirit to uh, prophets and apostles, that, that we might know you. And as you gave these words, and, and that your church might be infallibly instruct, instructed, and that you have preserved these words these, these many years, we ask that as this word is read today, that you would accompany your word by your Holy Spirit, that he would dwell within our hearts and prepare our hearts to receive it that your word might not return unto you void, but that your word would produce the fruit of repentance, the fruit of faith and trust in our Savior Jesus Christ, and obedience to your will. And we ask, dear Lord, that all distraction would be cast off. We pray, dear Lord, that you would focus our attention and our understanding. And we ask that Jesus Christ would be magnified and shine forth, that I would fade. In his name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from the book of Job, chapter 9. Then Job answered and said, I know, it is of, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just before with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered which removeth the mountains, and they know not, which overturneth them in his anger, which shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble, which commandeth the sun, and it riseth not, and stilleth up the stars, which alone spreadeth out the heavens, and treadeth upon the waves of the sea, which maketh Octurus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, which doeth great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. Lo, he goeth by me, and I see him not. He passeth on also, but I perceive him not. Behold, he taketh away, and who can hinder him? Who will say unto him, What doest thou? If God will not withdraw his anger, the proud helpers do stoop under him. How much less shall I answer him, and choose out my words to reason with him? Whom, though I were righteous, yet I would not answer but I would make supplications to my judge. If I had called and he had answered me, yet would I not believe that he had hearkened unto my voice? For he breaketh me with a tempest and multiplieth, me with, and multiplieth my wounds without cause. He will not suffer me to take my breath, but filleth me with bitterness. If I speak of strength, lo, he is strong. And if of judgment, who shall set me a time to plead? If I justify myself, my own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. Though I were perfect, yet I would not know my soul. I would despise my life. This is one thing, therefore I said it, 
He destroyeth the perfect and the wicked. If the scourge slay suddenly, he will laugh at the trial of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covereth the faces of the judges thereof. If not, where and who is he? Now my days are swifter than a post. They flee away, they see no good. They are passed away as the swift ships, as the eagle that hasteth to his prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, and I will leave off my heaviness and comfort myself, I am afraid of all my sorrows. I know that thou wilt not hold me innocent. If I be wicked, why then labor I in vain? If I wash myself with snow water, and make my hands never so clean, yet shall thou cleanse me in a ditch, and my own clothes shall abhor me. For he is not a man, as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. In Job's answer to Bildad, we can divide this in largely two different sections. Uh, the first section, the uh, 1 to 21, uh, deals with uh, a rebuttal against Bildad's accusation that Job was charging God with injustice. Uh, Job confirms that no man is just before the Lord. That he confirms that no man has cause to contend with the Lord, and that's mainly the thrust of his argument in verses 2 through 21. Secondly, though, he, he readjusts the actual grounds of their dispute. He makes his point that God's providence is no measure of man's character. In other words, re, using slightly different words than, than what is used in Ecclesiastes and uh, Solomon, uh, we... Uh, the, the same thing happens to the just and to the wicked. Uh, and that you cannot take a man's trials and judge of his state before the Lord. Because both uh, the just and the unjust suffer. Both the just and the unjust are proper, uh, prospered. And so this is the heart of the contention, uh, as Job sees it, between his brethren. And then uh, he follows that as part of it, his plea because if, it, if, if he doesn't have any standing before the Lord, and yet he does suffer, his only hope is in God's unmerited, free mercy and compassion to him. So we'll look at basically that structure, and we'll see uh, Job's outline. Of his, uh, we'll look at the, closely the outline of Job's argument, uh, and then we will draw lessons from it for ourselves and, and look at the lessons that he gives. So in the first part, uh, the, the confirmation that no man stands before, just before God, we get in verses 2 and 3, I know it is so of a truth. How should man be just with God? If he contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. Uh, there is uh, no grounds to contend. There's no the basis of that contention. And this answers Bildad's accusation uh, that Job's words were blasphemous and without foundation. Uh, in verses 2 and 3 of that passage, How long wilt thou speak these things? How long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Doth God pervert judgment, or doth the Almighty pervert justice? This is what you're accusing him of, Job. And Job is saying, no, no, I agree. Uh, it's interesting to note that the form of it, 
how should man be just with God, actually reflects also that revelation that Eliphaz reveals in chapter 4, 17. That that secret spirit that came unto Eliphaz in the shadowy night uh, and gave him one piece of revelation uh, that that man cannot stand just with God. Job, Job certifies that. He recognizes the truth of that. When Bildad ended up his speech, Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoers, till he fill thy mouth with laughing and thy lips with rejoicing. They that hate thee shall be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked shall come to naught. Job gives his imprimatur to that. Job recognizes that Bildad is speaking truth. The problem is, is that it's not the whole truth, that there's more to it. But he wants to be understood that he is not challenging the justice of God. That that there can be no real challenge to God's justice and his his right to handle creation as he wishes. This is what verses 4 through 10 uh, give us. He's wise in heart and mighty in strength. Those two things are put there and you'll have throughout the rest of this section of Job's speech... Uh, interplay between God's wisdom and his power. The reason why they're put together here is important because the, the God never reveals himself to be just in the sense of might makes right. God is um, all-powerful, almighty. He can do what he wishes and there's nothing that can come up against him. Uh, this is one of those arguments that Eliphaz also used, Bildad alludes to it, that there's no cause for God to be unjust because injustice is is usually getting around something, getting around an obstacle. We see that in the corruption in our own government and lies and and all those sorts of things that happen in everyday life. Uh, When we encounter corruption and and when we encounter injustice, it's because somebody is seeking power and they are weak and have to hide something. And have to obfuscate and have to deter. But God has no such weakness. God has no such uh, calls to do anything that would lessen himself because he can do anything he wants to. Job uh, uh, ratifies this and says, yes, absolutely. He is without any limitation on his strength. And this is not the sole reason for his justice. Also, his wisdom is part of it. So he acts in accordance with his wisdom. Uh, this gets into an old philosophical thing. Is God good? Uh, well, Is something good because God says it's so? Or does God say it's good because it is so? And the, the idea is there a standard of goodness that even God adheres to. And the, the way you break through that conundrum is the fact that, no, God is good because he is good. He is his standard. Uh, but, but there is genuine goodness there. It's not arbitrary. Uh, the con- concept of Islam is that God is all-powerful, and any sort of thing that you could say to limit that power is, uh, brings him down. And so they are hesitant for things like God cannot sin. Uh, they, they, in the sense that he can't, in the sense that God can't do anything against his own will, uh, that is the case. But in the sense that God cannot do evil, uh, they would halt because he can do whatever. Uh, the Christian and the biblical and the way God reveals it is that to do evil is less. To do evil is less than good. It is the marring of a good and perfection. And that is why he cannot do it. Uh, because to lie 
is to be less than truth and less free and less powerful. Uh, This is at the heart of why Job can take these two things, his wisdom and his mind, as arguments for God's justice. Because there's nothing to hinder him. There's nothing for him to be unjust about. Uh, And and so in verse 4, nobody can harden themselves against him and prosper. Uh, because he can remove mountains and they know not. Uh, he uh, shakes the earth and it is shook. He commands the sun, it rises not, and seals up the stars. All the heavenly bodies are in his control. This is, he is the creator. And he wasn't just created them and set them in motion. He is their creator and still has sovereignty and exercises sovereignty over them. Not only so in the mind of the ancients where the stars themselves were considered to be a heavens, the stars to be considered the embodiment of the gods, even they are subject to him. The, the, the constellations, Octurius, it would be the bear, the, 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 the north, Orion, the Pleiades, uh, the chambers of the south, the southern uh, constellations, as well as the northern constellations. Uh, everything is... Is wonderful. There is no, there's no sort of sense of balance in which mankind can can sit with God in a reason conversation and and figure something out because God is just there. There's just nothing to contend with. They're so utterly different. Man is so utterly limited. Man, even without unrighteousness, man has so many limitations that. That there could not be, uh, you can't improve God's perfection. You can't inform Him of anything. You can't uh, 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 change anything about Him because that would imply that there was something needing change and therefore imperfect. And so uh, there's no challenging the Lord's wisdom and mind. And not only that, even if one could, uh, we wouldn't even know where to begin. Verses 11 through 13. Lo, he goeth by me, and I see him not. He passeth also, and I perceive him not. You know, we know the Lord is there. We see the works of his hands. We see the, the fruit of the Creator. But the power of being itself is invisible to us. It's not the only thing invisible to us. There's so many things invisible to us. Uh, so many normal things that are invisible to us. Uh, just the whole concept of justice. It's a real thing. It can be violated. It can be corrupted. It can be changed. But you can't put your eyes or your ears or your hands upon justice as a concept. It's immaterial. It's invisible to us. And there are lots of things like that. Life, uh, as one of the great mysteries of biology, still is determining exactly what makes life life and inanimacy and lack of life that. That boundary between uh, something that is just laying there and something that has a principle within itself of living and moving, or or plants not moving, but somehow growth and life. These are things that are invisible to us even today, not to mention Job's day. Behold, he taketh away, and who can hinder him? And who will say unto him, What doest thou? If God will not withdraw his anger, the proud helpers do stoop under him. I think the translation in the Pew Bible is Rahab, but Rahab means um, proud. Usually it's a reference to Egypt. Uh, In some parts of Scripture, sometimes to something that is prideful, sometimes to a monster, sometimes whatever. Uh, The proud helpers, those who assist pride, even they will be brought low 
regardless of whether this is a nation or whether it's a principle, whether it's, it's the wicked devils and monsters themselves. All things are subject to his upholding life. If you were to die today, if the time would end today, there's not a single thing. We wouldn't know it's coming, and there's nothing we could do to resist it. That is the power. That is the right over his creation that we talk about. The first of the great mysteries that, that really shut us up before the sovereignty of the creator. Now, as you'll see, Job doesn't shut up. And we're not asked to shut up before him. But it does mean that the way we contend with the Lord is recognizing certain realities. And Job is making sure that his friends understand that he recognizes those realities. That this is not that. There, this is, by the way, a thing that's constant in Scripture. You get in Isaiah. Isaiah um, 27. Uh, uses the language of the book of Job, actually, uh, to talk about uh, God's power to, to redeem his people when he determines that he will redeem his people. And not until then, and no matter what comes against them, it doesn't matter, they're no match for him. Because see, this, this, while for Job, this is a doctrine that, that really brings him to despair, and, well, not despair utterly, because he's still wrestling with God, but to great confusion and trouble, it is also a doctrine of great hope to those that know they're right with the Lord. In Isaiah 27, the first five verses, In that day the Lord will, with his sore and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan with the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest, it, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me. And he shall make peace with me. In other words, uh, that there is no resisting the Lord. Uh, the, the, the only thing to do is take that invitation of peace and be at peace with him. Uh, Rome, uh, the book of Romans, uh, Paul himself deals with this. Paul, the great, the great preacher of the gospel, nevertheless recognizes that in the context of the gospel, we're still dealing with a God who is sovereignly in control. And so in Romans chapter 9, verse 19, actually 14, we could back up to 14, but we'll start with 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, why does he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another to dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction? And he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath prepared unto glory even us, whom he had called, not of the Jews only, but Gentiles also. Uh, and, and he goes on, that, that there, we ought to be grateful for his mercy, but understand his mercy is not a claim upon God. And we ought to understand that our standing before the Lord is a standing of His grace and His mercy. 
and that we don't stand apart from it. That he is sovereign in control of those things. Now that's Job's articulation of the general doctrine of God's sovereignty, but he also applies it to himself. Because remember, he's contending that he is, to in a certain sense, innocent. He is recognizing what God says. God says in the very first chapter that here's a perfect man, a man without guile, a man that is devoted to me. Job knows the integrity of his heart. He knows that he is devoted to the Lord. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't reflect that perfection of grace in the same way that, that God does. He's much more humbled. He recognizes that this is a, a grace and a perfection that comes through forgiveness and piety and devotion and faith. Uh, this is why he was a man, a priest to his family. He recognized that, that though they were right with God, that this was based on God's mercy to them. And so when he coming to himself in verse 14, he says, if these things are so, even of the perfect man, how much less shall I answer him and choose out my words to reason with him? I am in this ash pot. I am scraping my skin with all these blisters and worms and, and sores. I am the one that is grieved and robbed of all wealth and even of my family. How much less do I have I to stand before him? Though I were righteous, yet I would not answer, but I would make my supplication to my judge. Understand, he, he's not approaching God to contend with him on justice. He's approaching God, yes, as a judge, but in the, the Old Testament sense of a judge is one who gave relief to the beggars and to the poor, the one who was not just a minister of judgment, but a minister of mercy. Job is saying, I'm not going to God and I'm not wrestling with him and contending him on the basis of justice and of my merit and of my standing before him. I am wrestling with him because I am a beggar in need of relief. And if you don't see that in the words of Job, then you're basically falling in line with his friends and, and the, the book becomes much more confusing. He says, if I had called and he had answered me, yet would I not believe that he had hearkened to my voice? He says, uh, that in, in other words, that, that, that if he had conjured him, he wouldn't believe that the Lord had, had submitted himself like a, a demon to a conjurer and, and bound himself to him, that he was subject to him. Because he breaks me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not suffer me to take my breath, but filleth me with bitterness. This is a complaint, but it is nevertheless one that recognizes his sovereignty over himself. If I speak of strength, lo, he is strong, and of judgment, who shall set me a time to plead? I don't speak in these ways. If I did, I'd be foolish. I can't go against the wisdom and might of God. I have no advocate or, or uh, lawyer to help me in such a task. And if I justify myself, my own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall prove me perverse. As John says in his first epistle, chapter 1, uh, if I say, he, he says he's without sin, the truth is not in him. Though I were perfect, even if I were perfect in my consciousness, if I was conscious of no sin, yet would I not know my soul, I would despise my life. This is similar to what Jeremiah says in 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God alone. 
There are, there are depths to our souls that we can't plunge, and we know that in those depths is still that heart of rebellion, is still that little notion that regardless of whether we give obedience to it or not, as soon as we hear, you shall not do something, we want to do it. Or do something, we complain about it. It's there. It's part of us. Ever since the fall, it is part of who we are. And we do not trust to our own righteousness. But we do seek, as beggars for mercy, relief from the only place we can get relief is the same one who is so unhindered that he has no reason to act unjustly. The same one who controls the constellations, the stars, and the sun. The same one who holds all things in his hand. You don't go to him as one to contend with him. You go as a supplication to a judge. Seeking mercy and relief. This is Job's answer to Bildad's uh, accusation that he was blaspheming and charging God with injustice. But that's the, the negative argument. I'm not doing that. Here's the positive thing. This is what you're missing, Bildad, in verse 22 proper, but he kind of goes to verse 22 to 24. This is one thing, and therefore I said it. This is what I'm standing on. This is that one thing I wish you would get across. He destroys the perfect and the wicked. And don't read that, or don't hear that, Bildad, as if I'm challenging his justice. He has the right to destroy the perfect and the wicked. But he does so. And if the scourge says slay suddenly, if something comes unexpected, uh, he will laugh at the trial of the innocent. Again, we can read that and it comes off very divisive. Remember that all the emotions that we put upon God are, are those of, of anthropomorphic. But the fact is that the trials of the, the innocent, uh, God knows where they are. They come from his hand. Ultimately, he's not distressed over them because he knows what he's going to do for them. And so it is as like, as, and to Job's perception in the middle of these trials, it's as God doesn't really care and is laughing at them. And that is a, from a very subjective point of view, that is a true presentation of the image. And it's one that will come across in other parts of Scripture. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covereth the faces of the judges thereof. If not, where and who is he? Who can deny that the wicked prosper? Who can deny that the, the wicked bubble up in the hierarchy of power and authority just like the scum on a stew pot? It's almost like it's that authority, human government, is a lamp that attracts the mosquitoes and the moths. First and foremost, it can't be denied that that's the case. And if, and if we're not going to deny God's sovereignty, power... And, and wisdom, then we need to recognize that God, in a certain sense, is okay with this. Now, there are reasons for it. Uh, we don't need to forget the general punishment that all mankind is due, being sinners, that we have lost, that we, sometimes the Lord, as we, we know, we get what we deserve. Uh, we get that which we bring upon us very often in His justice. But regardless of the whys and the wherefores, that's reality. 
And that's the reality that you have to deal with, I have to deal with, we have to deal with, even as we wrestle with God. We don't want to go with God with a Pollyannish, fictional view of our reality. That's the last thing you want to do before the God of truth. It's why, all the, even in the book of Psalms, but particularly in the narrative passages of Scripture, also in the book of Job, that we run across phrases and prayers that we would back away from in our own prayer life because they are being sincere and honest before God. And it can look a little blasphemous at times. The trick is to, to wrestle with the Lord until you can refine what you say, just as Job does, just as David does. Uh, but to be honest in the heart of it and then backtrack it in honesty as the time appears, as it becomes evident. This is the, the point, though, is that you can't go around judging other people based on what happens to them. You don't know what God is doing in that judgment. You don't know what God is doing in that trial or in that hardship. And in your own hardships, you don't know what God necessarily, without revelation and a certain wrestling in prayer, just without any sort of connection with God, you don't know why that suffering is happening. Visual history is not ever the whole story. Look, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14. This is one of the points of, of, of Solomon. And Solomon says, all is vanity. That is temporary. It's not worthless, but it only has a temporary nature under the sun. You know, he's, he's taking things considered apart from God. And he goes through all the vanities of this life. And one of the reoccurring ones is, is said very succinctly in chapter 8, verse 14. There is a vanity which is done under the earth, upon the earth, excuse me, that there is just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is a vanity. He goes on in chapter 9, the first three verses, For this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hands of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. In other words, you don't know if you are hated or loved by God by what is before you. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrifices and to him that sacrifices not. As is the good, so is the sinner, and he that sweareth as he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun. There is one event unto all, yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madness. And madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. This is, Job also gives, gives a great deal of plea to that because it is one of those things that troubles us in our affliction. There's a positive aspect to it too. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 45, Jesus reminding us that we are to love our neighbor, even our enemies, because God loved us when we were yet his enemies, reminds them that the God of creation gives sunshine to the just and to the unjust and gives rain to the just and the unjust. Now, there's more to it just than that. But that's an important thing to remember, that there is a general benevolence and a general hardship of God. And the way he does. Both Ahab, that wicked king of the northern kingdom Israel, and Josiah, generations later, king of Judah, a righteous king, both ended their days in the same way. They were both taken off the battlefield in a chariot, dead. 
One death was very different than the other, only in respect to what God was doing there. God was preparing to bring down the sins of Ahab upon the northern kingdom. God was sparing Josiah for the sins, for the pain and the trials that he was bringing upon the southern kingdom. There's a difference, but the difference isn't in our perspective. The difference lies in the heart of God. Jesus was not the only man upon the cross. Both Jesus and the thieves hung there upon the cross. But they were two very different events. But even if you put Jesus aside for the moment and you look at just the two thieves upon the cross, we know that even for those two thieves, it was very different. One continued in his blasphemy and his mockery of Jesus Christ, and he was reaping in the body, even before death, the divine judgment against sin, his sin. The other one, through this miserable and awful death of the cross, even he began mocking, but was brought into the presence of the Son of God, was brought to repentance and faith so that his Savior said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. And had that thief not been upon that cross, it would not have happened to him. The same thing happens to the just and the unjust. It doesn't mean that that's the whole story. Job Job needs this to be true. Because Job is suffering as, as... the most wicked or evil of people are suffering right now, at least in his life and according to this day and age, there wasn't any that had suffered worse than Job. To lose everything, to have all the signs of God's anger against him, it is vital that Job clings to that one fact that you can't determine God's will just out of providence, what is happening to you. And it sounds like a a startling doctrine. But again, right there at the heart of our greatest hope, you have two crosses on either side of the cross. And we see that same truth play out. That as far as anybody can see, those two thieves died the same death. They suffered the same. They both died. But what we could not see was one stayed under the wrath of God and one was in paradise with his Savior. And that's a truth that is desperately needed to be known when we are, uh, when we are suffering. Uh, it creates a crisis about what to do because it confuses us. It's hard to remember these hard things when they're in the middle of suffering. Psalm 73 talks about De- uh, Asus. Uh, confusion when he saw the prosperity of the wicked, his foot almost slept, uh, slipped. He was in danger of, of, of denying his God and his Savior and, and giving up on holiness and righteousness until he came into the sanctuary. He came into the picture of God's mercy and he remembered that their prosperity is, is but a vanity. And it brings him unto judgment. Job says, My days are swifter than a post. Not post as in a runner, somebody taking mail. Uh, they flee away, and they see no good. 
They are passed as the swift ships, as the eagle that uh, hasteth to the prey. Now, in verses 27 to 31, he, has, uh, he is addressing someone. Uh, he is saying, uh, I know that thou wilt not hold me innocent, in verse 28, and uh, you shall plunge me to the ditch, in verse 31. Who is the thou there? I think, actually, it's Bildad. I think he's still talking to Bildad. It could be the Lord. Uh, but I, I, regardless, he knows that if he just pretended everything was okay, that it wouldn't change the fact, the charge of hypocrisy by his brethren, because they would still judging him based on what's happening to him. And it wouldn't change the fact that God is still treating him in a way that, that he feels only is wrath, and so uh, it would still ruin him, and he would still have no hope. He doesn't know what to do. And, and the crux of it is in verse 32, and this is where we part company with Job, because we know a little bit more than he does. But nevertheless, for he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should have come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that he might lay hand upon us both. This is, he's picking up that same complaint that he did earlier. I, I want to, to have mercy from the Lord, but I know that there's no way I can force this upon God. I know that there's no way, uh, there's no third party that can bring us together. That has that ability. He is so different from him. And my only hope, verse 34 and 35, is that he would just do it. Take his rod away from me and not terrify me so that I can speak fear, free and not fear him. But I don't feel that. And it's not so with me. He has no claim upon God, no mediator. And he, so he has to rely on just arbitrary grace. This, by the way, obviously, is where the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ shines so wonderfully. Because we do have a daysman betwixt us. We have one who is God. We have one who is at the same time man. And suffered as we have yet without sin. Who could put his arms upon us both and bring us together under reconciliation. And that is one of the primary lessons that we have from the book of Job itself is to see that glory and mercy we have in the gospel. But also, just from this passage, first and foremost, suffering is never the whole story. You know, the Lord looks upon our affliction as a good. In verse 23, he sees the sudden affliction of the innocent and he laughs. But it's kind of said in a very similar way uh, that God takes delight in the death of his saints. That sounds awful, to someone who has lost their loved one. But it is a good. We know it to be the case. And almost in, in those passages, at least the, the precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saint, is a comfort to us because we know the greater promises of the Lord to us. It is a good. As we read in, in 1 Peter, that, that, that he brings... Refinement out of suffering. It's like purifying fire. It's refining our faith. Uh, James tells us in first James, oh, well, James chapter one, verse two. My brethren, count it our joy when you fall into diverse temptations or trials, knowing this that the trying of your faith works patience. Let it have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. 
that it, it prepares us for that glory. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, uh, we have, Wherein we greatly rejoice, though now for a season of need be, you are in heaviness through many bold trials. Uh, the trial of your faith, which is much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found in the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. It's true that God also causes us to suffer chastisement. And it's important that we remember he does that. And that's a good, but we can see that good. But it's also important to remember that he, he, he causes us to, to suffer even when there is no chastisement, that our faith might be made more sure. It throws us upon the Lord's mercy and, and a knowledge of it. Uh, that's what we get at the end of chapter 9. He recognizes his need for a mediator. And the thing is, this trial causes him to see. Job himself grows in his knowledge without special revelation, without a prophet to come to him. He grows through his suffering to recognize that indeed he does have a redeemer, even though he may not be able to, to express it fully. In chapter 19, verse 25 and following, I know that my redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see of myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins consume within me. There is a daysman betwixt mankind, and, and Job is brought to see it. Uh, he is first brought to see that he can never find peace with himself. You know, though I were perfect, yet I would not know my own soul. But he does come to know that he does have a Redeemer, that he does have one to succor him. And so we, when we face our trials, we need to remember that this is not God being angry with us necessarily. We need to search our hearts to see if there is aught that God could be angry with, to repent and turn from it. But to know also the trials are there to make us better. The trials are there to make us stronger. The trials are there are to get rid of dross. The trials are there are to clarify, to make us know more fully what the Lord has in store for us in glory. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And we thank you that even in the midst of grief, even in the midst of affliction, even in the midst of great uncertainty, we have your promise and we know that you work all things together for good for those who love you, those that you've called according to your own purpose. And we ask in the name of Christ that you would indeed show forth that good that you work in the midst of the world's evil, that we might give you praise and glory, and that we might stand firm in our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.